Welcome to episode 3345. I promise you fire and brimstone today, not just fire like it's not a motivational show, but I do hope it provides some level of motivation. Uh, We're going to talk today about the current geopolitical and economic system and why I think it spells really bad times ahead, uh, though I don't claim to know exactly what it'll be like. Now, there's some scuttlebutt chatter here in the uh, live feed asking about the imagery today. And the titles and the de facto decision here is AI makes the images and I write the titles. In this case, I wrote the title 100 percent. Sometimes I actually do use AI to uh, reflect some ideas back at me and use it more like a discussion tool to come up with cool titles. Or I come up with a title and go not so in love with that. Hey, give me some other examples and, and then maybe modify one. The imagery today, though. If you're on uh, audio only and you're just using a uh, an app to listen, you know, and you're not coming to the website at all, is Joe Biden on the top of the White House playing the fiddle while D.C. burns? And of course, the title is "Our Leaders Fiddle as the Empire Burns." And what I think you might come away with today from this episode is an idea that whatever you do. You need to do it faster, better, and more efficient. So I had a lot of discussion recently with folks that were here, uh, some people that were here at my house for the 15-year anniversary party last week. And we talked about AI some, and I don't remember, I think it was John John Pugliano who asked me if I was paying for AI. And I, I do have the premium version of ChatGPT and the premium version of MidJourney. And MidJourney is what I use to do the artwork, and ChatGPT is what I use for a lot of other things. And the way I framed it is, so for $40, I hired a copywriter, a proofreader, a research team, uh, a a team to uh, bounce ideas off of, and a graphic artist. And the weak link in it for 40 bucks is the graphic artist because i got to tell the graphic artist to redo shit like six times, sometimes 10 times, sometimes 20 times to get what I'm actually asking for. And this one, if you haven't seen it yet, come take a look at it, of Biden on the rooftop. This was one of those like 20-time things. I also said, that's like hiring any graphic artist. You're, even when you're standing right there, you're like, no, move the individual to the left. I want them on the rule of thirds. And they're like, okay, and then they don't do it. So uh, totally not really with the topic on that intro, but it is. Because a lot of you are going to come away from this going, gee, what do I do about my cash? Well, you know, you have all the options we always talk about, whether it's Bitcoin, gold, silver, equities, real estate. Um, but in the end, you're also going to need a lot more cash. You're going to need a lot more income. People think that when uh, inflation really hurts, money's bad. No, you need more money. Unless we're talking Weimar, that's not where I see this going. So maybe that is a good primer. It certainly wasn't the intro that I had planned. Before we dig into the fire and the brimstone, and we're going to be talking about, uh, yes, economics a lot today, but lead story is going to be about what's going on in Ukraine. And is the United States getting ready to, uh, like, flick Zelensky off like a booger since things are not going the way 
that they said, or might they use it as an excuse to get rid of the potato? Yeah, the potato in chief. We're going to talk about that first. Then we're going to go into the economics of things. We're going to talk about the mortgage market showing a signal that in some ways is worse than 2008. And I will give you both a story from the mainstream media that backs this up and then a very simple graph, because I find that graphs really put things in perspective. Uh, we're going to talk about corporate lending, bank to company lending, hitting all time lows and what that really means. Uh, we're going to talk about the fact that while mortgage lending and corporate lending are at all time lows, you know, it's at an all time high credit cards. And all this starts to look a lot like a rhyme of 0708, a rhyme, not a repeat, a rhyme. Then we're going to talk about the lesson from 0708 that most people have not learned and will not learn. And maybe you will today because it's not any I, I bet you no one's ever explained what I'm going to explain to you about the real lesson of 0708 to you before ever. I know I actually haven't explained it before. I knew it, but I never really explained it. It just never worked its way into an episode. Then we're going to talk about Fed now, and everybody's saying, it's a CBDC. We're going to tell you it's not. Um, give you an article from the Mrs. Institute that says it's not, so they're not actually on the side of the Fed or anything here. But it can be very, very dangerous and exasperate some of the crisis that are leading up, and you bet your ass it will be able to enable a CBDC. But we're going to think of it more like a network which is what they are designing. And then before we kind of talk about the very last thing, which kind of gives us something different to talk about, we're going to talk about the, the trigemic, right? The trigemic is coming and how that might actually play into all of this economic woe should it hit this fall uh, and how it might be used and leveraged and how they did it last year, but it didn't work. Nobody bought into it. So they made it a tiny little change in the name, right? They changed the name just just a little bit, just just a little bit. It was the it was the triple demic last year. It's the tridemic this year, or they switched it. I don't remember which way they switched it, but one way or another, they switched the name a little bit. So you'd think it was something new because this year we're gonna have COVID and we're gonna have a flu and we're gonna have RSV like like we have ever since COVID started and like we've had forever. Because COVID is a coronavirus, and we've had coronaviruses for as long as we've known of viruses. So we'll talk about how the addiction to lockdowns and power may play into all this. Then we're going to end. We're going to end talking about something totally different, music. The song that everybody's talking about right now. And I hate saying everybody, but it's almost everybody. And, of course, that is uh, Try That in a Small Town. And I have a take on that that, yeah, maybe it's unique. Maybe it's unique. All right. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today is JM Bullion. You know, you want to preserve and protect your wealth. And I, I often find when I mention Bitcoin, people are like, I believe in silver. And then you talk about how much silver you have, like two ounces. So what you really believe in is nothing. I believe that we need to be stacking real value right now. I love Bitcoin. I love gold. I love silver. And I love things like real property if it's done properly. Um, I think it all makes sense. I think it all has a place. Silver is an amazing way to be able to pass along wealth anonymously uh, because it's a physical thing you can hand from one person to another. Same going for gold. 
And uh, there is some rumbling right now that there may be, in fact, a gold standard coming out of the BRICS nations. We'll talk about that more next week. But if you see one of these things uh, going up in value, gold, for instance, then you generally see silver trailing along with it. So both of those work. And I really recommend you look at uh, JM Bullion for a lot of reasons. One is because they've sponsored us for so long. It's about 10 years that we have stuck by us. They give you a discount. Everything ships free. And I can talk to the president of the company if ever need be. So I don't know why you'd buy from anybody else. They also have better pricing than Monix and Atmex, though, and Lear Capital. So they have better pricing. Plus, I can reach the president. Plus, they'll give you a discount if you're an MSB member. Plus, it ships free. You see what I mean? Anyway, next up today, the Permaculture Adventure Bundle from Paul Wheaton. It's over $500 in value for 65 bucks. I don't know how much longer Paul's going to keep this around. These kind of deals and these bundles he puts together usually run a few weeks. We're too into this one, so maybe one more week. This is just a tremendous amount of information that you can get for a, a song on the price. So definitely consider checking it out today. With that, as we move on, I want to say thank you to John Willis for the $20 super chat from SOE uh, Special Operations Equipment. Uh, thanks, John. I really appreciate that. That's that's really nice of you. This early uh, into the episode. You don't even know if you're going to like uh, what I have to say. So I want to start off with what I see happening in Ukraine. And this is going to be a much more complex um, topic than just what I'm predicting. I'm going to have to explain to you guys about some of the reasons that I, I give you the opinions I do about Ukraine, and yet I still say I'm not sure. But this was kind of a, a bold prediction I made a few days ago. And I'm linking to, I guess I'm on Primal, but one of one of the clients on Noster. And here's what I wrote. I said, prediction in, in less than 30 days, 45 on the outside, Putin is going to launch a massive offensive using about 200,000 troops. It will take out the Ukraine lines, which will totally collapse. When it happens, people like me who simply said that we should stay out of it will be blamed for the failure of Ukraine, despite massive money and materials given to them by the U.S. and the E.U., as though our opinions affect outcomes. And that's what's been done from the very beginning. People who have said anything except the party line um, have been shouted down, yelled at, hacked at, uh, told to shut up, called tools of Putin. And it amazes me. It absolutely amazes me. That... There is not only a lack of self-awareness in America, but a lack of pattern recognition. Where have we seen this pattern very recently before, and most of us learned the lesson from it? Wouldn't you say COVIDs? Isn't that exactly what was done with COVIDs and lockdowns and masking and injections and all of it? Wasn't it, you're going to kill grandma? And Michael, thank you for the uh, $10 super chat. I appreciate that as well. Um, thank you. Anyway, like, isn't that what happened? Like, anybody who said anything, if you mentioned an alternative therapy, you got shouted down and yelled at and silenced and censored and attacked vehemently. Don't you guys yet get that when opposing voices pop up and instead of being engaged in some form of intellectual debate, the response is autistic shrieking and screaming and censorship that it's probably the case that the opposing voice has something to it. Or you wouldn't respond to it that way. But Gelman Amnesia is a 
vicious disease. Gelman amnesia is where you know that the source you're trusting now has lied to you repeatedly in the past, but because it aligns with your cognitive biases, you're like, yeah, I, I believe them now. And you'll even cite a source that you would have used an ad hominem attack on for something that you agreed with or disagreed with in the past and knew you were right about, by the way. But now you're going to say, well, see, we're being, this is what, what's being reported by everybody. Well, everybody reports the same shit because everybody's using the AP and Reuters for all their bullshit, right? We've all seen the, 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 the little things that were done on like the Tonight Show or the Late Show. I don't remember who did it, where, but they show all these local independent news people and they all say the same thing. It's like a giant Brady Bunch grid and they're all saying the exact same shit and they even sync it up and play them all simultaneously and it sounds like one weird voice. When everybody's singing from the same sheet of music in the media, something's amiss. Now, here's the problem. I do actually, this is not the problem, this leads to the problem. I do actual journalism. I don't always do journalism. There's a lot of times where I get on, we're not doing journalism, I'm talking about how to grow a garden or something. When I talk about stuff like this, I do journalism. And when I come and say, this is what's going on exactly, that... I have confirmed that from two independent sources. And if I can't confirm it from independent sources, I don't report it as fact. I report it as my opinion. And I've tried to do that, and I've always tried to delineate. This is my opinion. This is what I've confirmed. I have never had something that when I go to trusted sources, I get as many divergent opinions as this war in Ukraine. It is the muddiest nastiest, screwed up shit to try to pull the truth out of. And I've covered other conflicts, wars, etc. And what ended up happening a lot of times is even if the media was saying one thing, let's say about Afghanistan, the sources 80 to 90% aligned. And that would be people that were actively engaged and involved and people who had left and had contacts, like all of it kind of merged together and made a really clear picture of what was actually going on. This does not. This does not. And I don't think it's just deceit. I think it's people believing their own bullshit and wanting to believe their own bullshit in emotion, even on people that should know better. And I'm not talking about the general public or even the media. I'm talking about people that are inside of places. Here's an example. I had a couple conversations with different people yesterday about this. Right now, the latest thing is that the Ukrainians need more air defense artillery capabilities. Well, uh, as though just giving it to them will make it all better. And, of course, this is on the heels of Odessa getting rocked by Russian cruise missiles and 19 out of 20 hitting their target in Odessa, which the Russians at least say was a retaliation for uh, Ukrainian action earlier in the week or earlier in last week. And uh, so now there's and there is like this is what I can confirm. There is this belief among people that are making decisions on our side that that's the next thing they need. It's like we gave them cluster munitions, didn't really do much except leave a bunch of shit around that little kids might get blown up with five years from now. Now they need more defense artillery. If you want that job in the United States Army, there's different jobs within crews on, again, ADA, Air Defense Artillery. The dummy... The guy with the least requirements goes to AIT or his technical school for 20 weeks. 
the people that have like the most advanced responsibilities go for about 40 weeks. This is after training in our basic military training that is better probably than most of the world. Despite all the wokeism talk and all, when it comes down to the training, we train soldiers well. And as a former soldier, I can tell you, I went to like 16 weeks, I think my AIT was for being a mechanic, a diesel mechanic, 16 weeks. It's a long time to learn how to turn a wrench and read a technical manual. And I was a good mechanic the day I showed up because I was a mechanic before I went in the military. I was a shade tree mechanic. I understood how things work. I, I went in as a mechanic because, well, one, because I thought I might stay long-term and the test scores to make E5 are really low because it was under understaffed. But I also did it because I liked doing it. And, but I can tell you that the average person that came into uh, their first duty station was six months before they were worth a shit. And that's pretty low tech, working on trucks, doing oil changes, changing parts. I mean, that's really inspections. That's really what it was. Sometimes you do something big like an engine swap or whatever. But it's just it's it's very simplistic in what you have to do. It's troubleshooting that's hard. So how long do you think it takes to become proficient in the most advanced air defense systems that we have? So if they gave them all this shit, who's going to run it while their body count is dwindling? At the same time, I talked to somebody yesterday who's in the know that says the stuff we gave them has been incredibly effective protecting Kiev, 100% knockdown rate, except they're using a, basically the version of autopilot. So they don't really understand how to use it. They did their best to train them. They were trained through translators that spoke Russian, even though their native language was Ukrainian, and it was a pretty small group. So this is another example of we're throwing more shit in there. Now, on top of this, we're talking about giving them F-16s, F-16s, F-16s will change change everything. And our government is saying, well, okay, before we give you the F-16s, you have to be able to use it, right? You don't just take some guy that was crop dusting like on, uh, what was the movie, Independence Day? You know, that flew some stuff back in NAM and then was crop dusting and put them in an F-16 and they know what they're doing. Especially when you're not on t- you're not on a movie screen, you're dealing with like people that know how to kill you when you're in an F-16 if you know what you're doing. So we got to get you ready before you give the F-16s. But then my orchestra drops another bomb in this, right? A verbal bomb. Well, it won't really change the battlefield anyway. Like our government just said that, and the reason he said that, and it's actually true for a change. The way that everything is set up now with like just clear lines of attack and defense, these jets are, on both sides are getting knocked out of the sky. Now, that's a little bit of an over-exaggeration. The Ukrainian jets are largely useless. Um, the Russians have trained pilots that are very effective using countermeasures like flares and things like that compared to us. Um, but we're going to do this anyway. And at the same time, I'm telling you, that the Russians are about to launch their own offensive. And I think it will be designed again to reclaim everything that they say is Donbass, set up artillery and shell the living fuck out of everything in front of them and drive back Ukraine's forces. So the front line is not stalemate anymore. And then once again say, hey, we want to go to the negotiation table. Now, when I say that, I get attacked. I get attacked 
is you're a tool of Putin. I'm giving you a military technical analysis after talking to literally over the last five months, six months, probably a hundred different people trying to get the clearest picture I can, plus reading both sides propaganda. Yes, I read RT. Yes, I read Fox News. Yes, I read Newsmax. Yes, I read CNBC. I read MSNBC. I read CNN, at least on this topic. Because again, when it's that murky, you have to get as many views into it. What you have is an elephant and dozens of people looking through a tiny peephole, seeing about one foot of the elephant and all arguing with each other about what they're looking at. And the only way you can try to get any kind of a clear picture is to take all of it and come back together. So here's another thing that I've heard. This I've heard from multiple sources. The Russians cannot maintain their troops outside of their country. Feed them, keep them supplied with material, maintenance, ammo, all that shit. That on the first invasion, the, the, the road to Kiev was littered with vehicles that weren't blown up. They broke down. Okay. Here's my issue with that. I don't know if you know this. It's a land-connected area. It's not like us trying to supply our people in central Afghanistan. Like, they can literally drive to the lines. And, again, trying to put these pieces together. What I've been told, again, by people in the know, again, by piecing together these sources, is the initial Russian invasion force was never designed to take Kiev in the first place. It was designed to create this huge diversion. There was a lot of shitty equipment and a lot of shitty soldiers, and a lot of the soldiers weren't Russian Army soldiers. They were volunteers that were used more like mercenaries and just randomly attached, and nobody really knew what the fuck they were doing. And I think the Russians thought, I don't really need them to know what they're doing. They're totally willing to sacrifice their people. All right. Again, I never said either side's a good guy. In this. And so that allowed them to get their their regular, more highly trained forces in gear and set things up back further in the Dunboss and create this triple line of defense that they have right now. And what they've been doing ever since they did that. And by the way, last year, I said a week before it happened, Russia's about to pull everybody back into what they consider Russia now and stop that major offensive into Ukraine proper. And I was called an idiot and a tool of Putin, and a week later, it's exactly what happened from piecing this together. So that's what I see coming now. Could I be wrong? Sure. But what Russia has been doing is exchanging a loss of life at about three to one over an opponent with a lot less bodies to start with. While over three million Ukrainians have fled their own country, and about... Two-thirds of that have gone to Russia, which they're not telling you as well. That vets out as best anything can in this murk. So we have this untenable situation that Ukraine can't win this war. And I don't care if that hurts your feelings, right? I don't care if you don't want that to be true. I don't care if you grew up watching the guy in the white hat always win and you think Zelensky wears the white hat. I don't care how you feel about it. I'm not analyzing it based on my feels. I'm analyzing it based on history and math. Okay? And, and, and defensive and offensive capability of two militaries. So the only way you change that balance is to drag NATO into this war. And that's going to result in some mushroom clouds. 
And so unless people are stupid enough to do that, and Europeans like to talk about it right up until, because you're the one that's going to go poof first. And then all of a sudden, well, we didn't really mean it. We've had Biden saying shit already, and we've had our own government saying shit like Russia's already lost. Then the next words out of their mouth are, but the war ends when Putin decides. Oh, wait a minute. If he's already lost, then why does he get to decide when? You see what I mean? It is incongruent. And so I actually think there is a potential that the United States may flick Zelensky off its finger like a bad booger and get rid of the guy somehow. It isn't like we don't have a track record of doing shit like this. Backing a guy, giving him a bunch of weapons, and then killing him. You know who we gave a bunch of weapons to? You know who we backed in a war? Saddam Hussein. Now, that took a little longer to play out than this would have to. But I see that as one potential. And it could be done CIA-like, back door, one of his own people, knife in the back, or something happens to him, he has an accident. It could be done with some sort of internal coup. There's a lot of ways you could do it. There's another option, just a um, straight-up mission accomplished, George Bush style. Hey, we did what we were supposed to do. Hi, right, Ukraine. It's all on you now, baby. Checkbook's closed for a while. We have our own problems, especially if you get a financial crisis like we're about to talk about. That might be an excuse to flick the booger, okay? The other one is, and this is, I mean, remember that neo-libs run this country right now. Yeah, yeah, I know the Republicans have a slim majority in the House, but they don't because there's a lot of rhino Republicans that side with the libs all the time. They control the Senate. They control the White House. They control the entire bureaucracy. The only thing the libs don't really have completely under the control right now is the Supreme Court, which would not factor into this. But they have a problem. They have a literal diaper-wearing potato as president. And it's a very sticky wicket to try to get rid of him without a primary. So the Democrats can basically avoid a primary, declare Biden the de facto nominee. There might be a vote, but they know it won't matter. All they have to do is nothing. And if they open a primary, a legitimate primary, there's this whole little problem well, I don't think as big of a problem as they might think, but his name is is Kennedy, right? RFK. Now, some of you guys think this guy is the savior of the country or something. You're nuts. This guy's a shit lib. He's just a shit lib from the 90s and 80s that didn't change. And a shit lib from the 80s and 90s that you would have hated in the 80s and 90s now looks pretty good compared to the lunatics and incompetent morons that are left. Now, let me before I go forward on that, I admire Robert Kennedy. If I was president of the United States, I would put him in charge of a bunch of shit and I would tell him, don't worry. I would put him on all kinds of environmental shit and say, you don't get to do anything with this CO2 climate change shit. Let, let's let's do what you did in the Northeast, suing uh, coal companies. Let's get the mercury out of the water. Here's a thousand pollutants. Let's fix this shit. Right. And I think the guys and I would put him in some position, have influence over medical policy as well. I think he's fantastic on that. He's, he's not a guy that I want running the country. Of course, I don't want anybody doing it. I, I'm an anarchist. Don't ever forget that. But if I had to pick, he wouldn't be the guy that I would pick. But I would put him in certain positions. I think he's really great on certain things. I don't think he's the threat that they might think. But once you let a variable in, all kinds of shit can unravel. right? All kinds of shit can go to hell. And so these people don't like risk. They like control. 
So how do you how do you off the potato? And you know you can't off the potato and then it would cackles, right? Cackles the hyena VP. That's untenable. That woman cannot win a general election as a presidential candidate right now against my dog. Okay? And everybody knows this. And as bad as Biden is, you can't have this person addressing the world as president. Nobody ever planned on her being president when this all started. She was an insurance policy that's now in the way. And the, the, uh, the de facto heir to the throne is no, nobody's shocked by this. this is Gavin Newsom out of California. He's the anti-type of Ron DeSantis in Florida. They have similar states in size and that they're both coastal and they're the complete opposite of each other. And I honestly think the left would be happy with that conflict as a general election. And DeSantis has a lot of good things going for him, but he's also very establishment. And they don't care who you are. In the end, they want their side, but they'll take the other side as long as you're establishment. So you get rid of Trump and somehow you set up a heads off against Newsom and DeSantis. That's the plan. But how do you do that? How do you do that? And how do you sideline Harris at the same time? I don't know. But all this shit that's all of a sudden being dumped about the Biden family and all the deals and all the backdoor money and the drug and everything else. And, and the mainstream media is still running cover fire because they're just they can't help themselves. But even like CNN and shit are starting to ask actual journalistic questions about this. The tide is turning. Can you get rid of potato and cackles and install an entire new team? Because cackles might be like, it's me, right? Like, no, it's not you. It's a sticky wicket. But that would be, and you might think, well, how does getting rid of Biden enable us to flick Ukraine off like a booger and extract ourselves from this? Well, it's his fault. He made a mistake. And now that he's gone, we have to correct his mistake, even though they won't say it that way. That'll be the inference. So don't ask me exactly what's going to happen there. But this is the shit that's going on. This is... The empire has its emperors, because we really don't have one, fiddling while the entire empire is burning. On that note, guys, we have stuff going on right now that even if it's in the news, it's below the fold and it's huge news and nobody's talking on it. So we're going to leave Russia behind and the Russia-Ukraine war behind, and we're going to talk about the economy right now. We're going to go into it from a standpoint of looking at lending and what is happening with lending. So the way this is being reported right now by the media is that people aren't taking loans and refinancing because they have these loans locked in from a couple of years ago, six years, eight years, even 10 years back that have better interest rates. My interest rate on my house is something like 2.95%. And I've held my mortgage for 10 years. I was able to get a mortgage like that. Uh, it's actually more than 10 years now. It's 11 years that I was able to get that kind of an interest rate. So if I were to think about buying a new house right now, and I just had a conversation with somebody about this, the only way I can do it is to significantly geo-arbitrage. I need to move someplace that property values are so depressed 
that the equity offsets the interest rate that's more than double what I have. So unless I want to make that kind of a major geographic move, which I don't, it's untenable for me. Now, the other thing I might do with the equity build is I might say I want to buy another property and do an equity extraction on a, on a HELOC, a home equity line of credit. But I don't want to do that now either because that's going to take that new amount of money and subject it to this much higher interest rate with not quite the terms that you get on a nice, clean, fixed rate mortgage. So I don't want I don't want to refinance or sell right now, not only, but, but if I, let me put it a different way, I don't want to do it anyway. But if I did, there would be a real impediment looking at an interest rate with great credit, by the way, of around 7% on what's supposed to be a safe loan, i.e. a mortgage. And it's not even that 7% or 6% is that high for a mortgage. I've talked about this before. Think of what you're asking a bank to do. We want you to lay capital away for a 3% or 4% return for 30 years. You wouldn't take that deal. Of course, you can't print the underlying money like they do. But it's still a long time to lock up money for a low rate. I mean, would you buy right now, if you had $100,000, $200,000, and you want to hold cash, would you put it in a CD for 30 years at 3%? If you say yes, you should go to your doctor. I've been using this line a lot lately, but I, I, I mean it. You should go to your doctor and you should say, hey, doc, I need to be brain scanned. And he says, when you say what, when he says why, you say, because I might have a brain tumor, right? Because something's wrong in your head if you don't get this. But I've always believed that the media is really big on not actually showing you the picture. So this is what I really want you to look at. It's a little, little graph that I've got here on the screen for you right now. This is another thing I posted on Nostra recently. This is year to year with it cutting off in July for this year. Uh, loan growth among banks on mortgages. Okay. So the black line in the middle, for those that are not looking at this, is the median. That means that historically, that's what the loan growth line looks like. And it's about center of the graph. And it's a significant growth. In other words, Every year, people add more and more money to the total amount of debt owed against property. People refinance, buy new houses, new building gets bought, and there's a, a statistically consistent growth in mortgage loans. Because as property goes up, the underlying loan goes up, because most people stay in their house two to three years now, and then they buy another house. And even if interest rates are low, they buy a more expensive, bigger house. And you have this constant entry into the housing market by people buying their first home, upgrades, etc. The blue line is 2022 when everything went apeshit in the market. Yes, apeshit is what I said. That's a term I use all the time. And it went parabolic, and it's way above the median. If you look at 2023, the line followed the median, not the accelerated, for the first couple months. It then plummeted like a rock. It went flat, and it's now in decline. And if you're looking at that graph, and it's not making you rethink your worldview about the economy right now, then you don't understand what you're looking at. This is a decline, a decline in mortgage debt, 
And it's not because people are paying it off. It's because the lending isn't happening. And it isn't happening for a variety of reasons. One, banks are a little bit more scared to lend. Two, the interest rates are high, so buyers are a little less willing to borrow. The prices of houses have gotten stupid, and people aren't comfortable with the price of the house, let alone the new cost of servicing the debt. One of the things that happened in the 07-08 crisis, and we'll cover this more in just a bit, is this, except it didn't. The lending continued even though people weren't really buying new houses. And, and, and we'll, I'll, I'll save that. But this is bad juju, guys. This is, this is not what you want to see in an economy, not even that's growing, that's healthy. Now, I know some of you are like, Jack, don't you preach getting out of debt? Don't you say that like people should pay down their mortgages and not keep buying new homes and just add on and put down roots and have homesteads and buy smart? I do. But it's not how our economy works, and I can't pretend that it does. I can't pretend this is all of a sudden everybody in America started listening to Jack Spierko and valuing their home as a homestead. That's not what this is. This is a, a seizing up of one of the major components of a fiat-based economy, which, by the way, that's what we have. Now, it gets worse. It gets worse because primarily in the 07-08 burnup, it was housing-related and later, after the housing implosion, it impacted the corporate world. So stocks came down as an in, initial knee-jerk reaction, but then when everything cascaded, we had layoffs and job loss, et cetera. And most companies were just not prepared. Now, when that happened, and part of why I was able to come out when I started the show in 08 and say, get out, get out, get out, here it comes, is my partner and I, Neil, had leaned out our companies and prepared in advance for the recession, and it still hurt. So imagine you're the company that didn't prepare. It hurts even more. They, they So in this case, what we have now, though, is the banks are not lending money to companies. Companies aren't borrowing. U.S. bank lend, lending touches record low as deposits fall. Okay, so now what you have is companies who have no trouble getting loans, by the way, their deposit value is in decline, and they're not borrowing money. So what this means is the corporations did learn what most of America didn't learn from 07, 08, and they're doing what my companies did. They are preparing for this in advance. They're also preparing to cut headcounts heavily, specifically companies that employ large amounts of knowledge workers, because they're, instead, they're going to do what I did. They're going to hire a whole team for a few hundred dollars a month. And they're going to give that team to individuals to run. That's going to be one dude doing the job of five people using AI to leverage the efforts that would have been done by the other four. And they'll probably pay him one and a half times what he's making, but the other four are screwed. And they're getting ready to do this. And that you can see that because as their deposits fall, they have less money, okay? They have less money. Usually when this happens, companies start to borrow more money to cover a money hole. It's very common when you're running a company, even you're doing it well, to have low seasons, and it's called a bridge loan. There's a lot of other terms for it, but it's really a bridge loan. 
We know there'll be a hole in revenue in August, let's say. We know it always comes back about mid-September. We have a six-week period to get through. You bring your financials to the bank. They don't even question it. Here you go. We've been doing this with you for 20 years. No problem. And this is what drives this is less the apples of the world and more the Bill's tire shops. Small shops and in technology, in blue-collar trades all over, these bridge loans are the common way these companies get through this. And even they're not taking the loans, even though they can get the loans. But, you know, here's the other side of it. The really small shops, let's say companies doing four to six million or less in annual turnover. They can't afford. They're not taking it because they don't want it. They can't. It's not that they can't qualify. They know they can't afford to service it because the cost of financing is damn, damn near three X for them. So they're making decisions based on simply having less money available. Now, again, this is one of those things. If you don't start to really worry when you hear this, you're not getting it. And there is only one form of debt that is continuing to grow at an all-time pace, and that is credit card debt. Credit card debt has hit an all-time high of $930 billion dollars. While well, the average person carrying debt on a credit card right now is carrying an interest rate of 16 to 24 percent. Okay, so it's almost a trillion dollars owed, mostly by middle class people who are no longer middle class and upper middle class people that are no longer upper middle class. Without getting a cut in pay, without losing their job. The average upper middle class person now is a middle class person. The average middle class person is a lower middle class person. And the average lower middle class person, while they haven't changed the underlying number, is effectively living below the poverty line and carrying a trillion dollars of debt at an average interest rate of, let's call it 20 percent. When I said that, even though I already knew it, knew I was going to say it, it hit me a little bit. That is a recipe for massive, massive, massive disaster. And it, it's hard to see how anybody can look at this. None of the stuff I just gave you is like the Russian war shit where I got to make 50 phone calls over a couple months and talk to people and get names of other people to talk to and track shit down to figure it out. None of it's like this is all publicly available data. Even the media that's not covering it is kind of covering it. And my guess is it's so when everything explodes, they can say, see, we told you. It, doesn't it sound an awful lot like no one ever made you get a vaccine? No one made you get a vaccine. We just threatened to lock you down harder and take your job away, take your kids away, and deny you medical treatment. But nobody made you do it. See the pattern. See the pattern. But this is where we really need to learn lessons from relatively recent history. In 08-09, the financial crisis that was unleashed, had it not been plugged by the most extensive money printing known to humanity until the 2020s and what we did with covid would have taken down the entire, entire global economic system. It was, it was Hiroshima times a million for the financial system, but we stuffed the banks with money. 
And the orange man said they did the right thing. They stuffed the banks with money. Like, see, even the opposite sides were agreeing on the approach and the approach being appropriate. Because literally, unless they were willing to burn it all over the ground and reboot with a new monetary system, which they weren't ready for yet, it was the only move. Kick the can another decade. But when they kicked the can, they did it by buying toxic debt with fake money. They took the toxic debt out of the market. Then they printed fuck tons of money and dumped it into the market. Then they gave it to the banks and gave them basically a license to commit incestual arbitrage at will. And I covered that, too. Here's all the money you want for almost no interest. Take it and buy U.S. Treasuries and make the spread and pump as much money into U.S. Treasuries as you can to make the Treasury an attractive investment vehicle, even though the interest rate's low, to the rest of the world. It's not good, but it's better than your alternatives. That's that's what they did. And that was a can kick. And at the same time, they cut interest for interbank lending. They cut interest for you and me. Buy houses. Go shopping. Let's destroy the free market to save the free market. All of that shit. And even though we're only talking, what is it, uh, 12 or 15 years? It's not that long. There's a whole bunch of people that act like this never happened. And this is like forecast of the false recovery. What did I say? That when this all blows over, and it will, let's start the band up, everybody. Party again. Yeah. Cops are gone, dude. They're not coming back. Break out the brewskis. And everybody party. And they partied so hard, they forgot the cops said, I don't want to have to come back here tonight. And if I do, I'm busting heads. I say that metaphor because if you're my age anyway, back in the 90s, you were at a party where that exact shit happened. And when the cops came back, they were not amused. And there were more consequences than just turn the music down on a second visit, where they're not. So everybody forgot. And every, the good times were rolling. The economy boomed to an all-time high. And whoever was in control at the time took credit for it. All the way up until the COVIDs came. And that put a wrinkle in it. But it actually fueled the fire because that gave them an excuse to throw more money in. But everybody forgot. Everybody forgot about the 0809 crisis. Fortunately, if you're a listener to this show, I didn't and I never let you. But there's a lesson in it that is probably the most important lesson that you can learn from right now. The lesson is patience. I highly encourage you, if you've never seen it before, to watch a movie. It's free. It's on YouTube. There's a link in the audio notes for today's show called The Big Short. And if you have watched it, I I would encourage you to watch it again and to do so with a different angle on your viewpoint. When people watch that movie, and if you've never seen it, I'm not spoiling it because it's it's like an A- minus for a produced movie for historical accuracy. It's probably more accurate than some things that they call documentaries. It's very accurate, character names, movements that were made, etc. But in this, there's one dude. He's a doctor. Very smart guy. Pays attention to data and numbers. He figures out it's coming. And there's literally at the time, there's not a way 
to short the housing market. The attitude is, well, who doesn't pay their mortgage? I mean, you pay your mortgage before any other bills. Everybody pays their mortgage. And he's like, people are already not paying their mortgage, and we're not being told that. They did a lot of research, and he literally goes to these giant banks and says, I want to short the housing market. And they're like, okay, well, you're smoking crack. And he said, but I got money to do it with. He was a, a, a manager of a lot of money. And so they're like, yeah, we'll do that. And they make a deal on these premiums. So while you're holding this thing called the credit default swap that they invented because of this, he wanted to make sure as things went sideways, he got his money from the bank and his investors got their money from the bank before the banks folded. So they made a deal kind of like a real-time payout. And as long as the short failed, money had to be paid out from the fund to the banks. And then if the mortgages failed, the money went the other direction. And so he's way ahead of the curve on this. And he he kind of like he has a lot of decision making capability within his firm. He can do things that even the board doesn't want him to do. And so he does this and he starts bringing in other investors into this. But something happened before the collapse. He had to do everything he could to keep everybody on board because if people started bailing and they didn't have enough money to cover the monthly premiums back to the banks for holding this shit, even if he was right, it wouldn't matter. Everything would fall apart and his funds would go bust. And he came very close to people bailing on him. Now, this isn't making the guy a good guy or a bad guy, just an accurate guy. He managed to hold it together. But the reason they were going to bail was you had this bleeding cash flow. But as he was proven right, nothing happened. When the number of toxic mortgages started getting announced, everybody's like, here comes our money. Nope. The system held together doing a thousand miles an hour and held together by duct tape and bailing wire. They should have exploded. Ran for about 18 months longer than it made sense for it to run. If you haven't seen this movie, go watch it from that viewpoint. If you have seen this movie, but you didn't think about it that way, go. it's free on YouTube, right? Go watch it again from this viewpoint, and you'll see what I'm talking about. The writing was on the wall. Nebuchadnezzar is screwed, right? Okay? It's right there. And then it happened, but it didn't. Don't think that can't happen again. Everything I told you is true. And I think you're going to start to see more and more bricks fall out of the wall. And you're going to be, uh, Mike's asking what movie. It's called The Big Short. The Big Short. And there's a link in the audio notes today, right? But I think you're going to be looking at this wall. And it's going to look like... Um, a giant game of Jenga played by people who are really good at Jenga. There's going to be so many holes in the wall. You're like, it's, it's not coming down. I, I, it should, but it's not. Oh, but it shall. Oh, but it shall. And this, I think, is not being planned or orchestrated, but being accepted by the elite. And they've been waiting a long time, and I mean a long time for it, 
so that they can institute a monetary rebasement and a new monetary system because they know the one that they have right now is worn out. It's technically over a hundred years old. We've had the Federal Reserve in place since 1913, right? So it's a hundred, what, 110 years old. We rebased in 1933 again by changing the dollar's relationship to gold unilaterally, laterally at the stroke of a pen from a president, rebasing gold from 20 to $33 an ounce. We then rebased the currency again in 1964 with the Coinage Act effectively demonetizing silver. Then we further rebased the currency in 1971 when Nixon closed the gold window. And then in 1975, when private ownership of gold was returned, that rebasement was instantly seen for what it was, and it, the decoupling was massive. So even if you go to 71, we're at, what, 52 years of the current form of a multiple rebase system that began 110 years ago. It's based on lies, manipulation, and promises that are constantly defaulted upon. How long do you think that can go? And the answer is longer than you think, because there were plenty of people in the 1970s that were like, here it is. And the 1980s, ba 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 a little recession under George II or George I. Then Bill Clinton comes in, prints some more money, ba 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 Budget surplus, it was all a lie, but it doesn't matter. We had 9-11 and Bush Jr. and recession and dot-com bust, and not long after that, ba 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 back up we go. And the whole thing, if you look at it, is a constant up. The dips in it, when you when you zoom out between 71 and 2023, you can't even see unless you know where to look, the 1987 crash, right? You can't see the recession of the early 90s under Bush. You can't see, uh, you can't even see the dot-com bubble. You can't see uh, 9-11 unless you know where to look. It just looks like little tiny squigglies. And that's what it all is. It has to end. And so the end most likely looks like a central bank digital currency. Now, right as all this is going on, you got the BRICS countries talking about doing a gold standard. And I'm going to tell you, because I've had a lot of people say, how can the BRICS do a gold standard? I'm going to give you a short version, and we'll talk more about it next week. When you look at all the BRICS nations, they have a couple hundred billion dollars worth of gold reserves. Of course, Russia lost like half of theirs, right? Um, but they still have a lot. And they say, well, how can you have a currency that's going to be used with that little amount of gold when we have a multi, you know, tens of trillions of dollars global economy that needs money to work. Well, the short answer is their, their plan is they'll put in the initial gold. They'll lend it with interest as a currency. And yet the gold will stay put and paper will represent the gold. This is exactly how things worked in the United States under the gold standard. Okay. That's exactly how it worked then. And then the idea is that individuals, nations, corporations, etc., will deposit their gold into this gold depository to earn interest on gold. Because it's very attractive to hold gold, but gold doesn't pay interest. But this would be a way to hold gold plus gain interest. Now, this is not going to necessarily work because do you trust Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa with your gold? It's up to them to sell the world on it. But a lot of countries have trust them more than us. 
We're like the kings of sanctions. So that could work. But while that's going on, the U.S. is introducing a system called FedNow. Now, a lot of people have been shrieking, it's the CBDC in disguise. Okay, those people, I'm sorry, even people that I like, do not understand how FedNow works, and they don't understand how a CBDC will work. I'm sorry, they don't, or you wouldn't be, you wouldn't be drawing a correlation. FedNow is a system that is for interbank monetary transfer. So that would be Bank of America transferring it to Summit Bank in the United States, or uh, the EU, trans, uh, the European Central Banks, transferring money to the United States back and forth. Instant settlement, that sounds familiar, okay, and available 24-7, 365. So one of the problems they say they have with interbank lending and transfers right now is that it takes too long, but the other problem is you can only do it during business hours. Well, you don't need to have a FedNow system to change that. You just make it available all the time. Turn, Change the clock on the computer settings. But the instant is the thing. This is an article at the Mrs. Institute. I encourage you to read it. I'm not going to read it to you here. But it explains how it's not a CBDC and explains why it's still dangerous. And it is. And it's dangerous because if you get bank runs, one of the things banks can do right now is this bank owes this bank money, but it's going to take three days to clear the funds. While the funds are clearing, they can go look for other funds to backfill or make phone calls, right, to Yellen, right, and j and say, hey, what do we do? There's a delay in the system. They're taking the delay away. So this could cause more rapid bank implosions, especially the little banks. Now, didn't I tell you a few months ago that the plan was to have like five, six, seven, eight maximum mega banks in the United States and get rid of all the little banks? Because surveillance would be so much easier if you didn't have so many dadgone banks to deal with. All right. The other thing is creating this interbank international system is an enabler for the ultimate goal of a CDBC plus monetary rebasement plus something else. National currency sovereignty. Everybody thinks what they really want is a global currency. They don't want a global currency. Global currency screws shit up. Okay. Like what? Like international business markets. Everything's based on one form or another of arbitrage. I'm buying labor in this country to manufacture product to export to this country because labor's cheap there. I'm buying the materials that are going to this country because the materials are cheap here. And I'm selling it in the country I'm exporting to because the, the, the final product brings me more profit. Nobody's doing this because they care about you. The guy in China... Not the guy working on the line. The guy in China running the factory, the Chinese oligarch, is not manufacturing widgets for you in America because he wants you to have cheap widgets. He wants your money. His entire system is enabled by their ability to float their own currency rates however they want and control it, and us being able to do the same, and us being able to respond to each other, and yes, even coordinate, even when we claim to be enemies. So if you go to a global currency and everybody's on the same system, it's a problem. What you want is a unified means of exchange and each nation or block 
BRICS, for instance, or something like um, the EU, right? It's like a loose version of the United States being able to do their own manipulation in their own economy. That's what Fed now enables with this real-time speed. Now, within the member countries, it becomes a spoke hub for your CBDC. So you have their system, and then they have the system for you that orbits around it. And so Fed now is not going to be modified so that they can create a currency that they can, you know, have expire. Like, this is one of the things that, like, and I'm talking to our own people. They think this is fantastic. They think it's great that they could give you money and say, but you have 60 days, 90 days, 120 days to spend it, and poof, it goes away. Or that they could say, we don't want you buying this thing, so we won't let you spend it on this thing. And when you say that, people are like, that's conspiracy theory, man. First of all, the people you've been calling conspiracy theorists right here, we've been right about almost everything for the last 20 years. So we're more like spoilers, like conspiracy spoilers than theorists. These theories have become proven. I'm a conspiracy therapist. I help you deal with the reality when it becomes evident. That's, that's, that's what I'm actually doing here. But haven't we seen this already? How about Operation Choke Point, where they try to choke off crypto? How many companies lost merchant accounts, bank accounts, et cetera, because they were in the firearms business? Now, make it. So much easier instead of having to like get like whoever's in charge of PayPal on the phone right now and say, hey, this is what we want you to do. OK. And having to have these meetings, you know, like, you know, a Bilderberg meeting and getting everybody together, and getting everybody on the same page. Just the individual bank, the central bank of any entity, type some things in the computer and make it happen. And then tell me they won't use it because they're nice guys. They're, when they get together for Bilderberg and those other big meetings, right, they're playing canasta and talking about their kids. They're not deciding how to manipulate the whole freaking world. You have to, again, go to your doctor, get a, a brain scan. Something's wrong in your head if you believe that. So I think they're going to use this as a method by which to rebrace the currency. And doing that is harder than you think to get buy-in from especially a country like the United States where we like to kill each other. Let's be honest. We like to fight with each other. And in the end, we all hate them. Even like the crazy leftist lunatics that are like raw, raw government, they actually hate their government, too. So when you start messing with people's money, you have to have something really going on. You have to have that hypnotism going really hard. You have to have people scared. It's not like taking away the gold in the 30s where the average American thought they were doing the right thing for their country. There's a lot less trust by all sides in the country itself than there ever has been. I hate to put it this way, patriotism is at an all-time low. It's actually good for this, they have to fight it. But it's bad because now they have to create a crisis that scares the shit out of people so bad. Sort of like the one we just had. We're like, okay, yeah. Do you know how many people that call themselves conservative America when they started talking about doling out that money, right? Them stimmy checks were like, give me. Let's go ahead and if we're going to do it, let's do it and make it more. Give me more. Give me more. I don't know anybody, including myself, that sent it back. I took it and I did something with it. And I did it fast because I wanted to capitalize on it before its value went to shit. Imagine being able to do that anytime you want to, but putting conditions on the money. Initially, only on the money they give you. See, that's how it'll work. Your money, your money's fine. You leave your money. But what's going to happen is, you know, like if you have online banking and you have an existing bank, 
you want to like open an extra savings account, right? An extra savings account. And you're just going to do that because you're going to put a hundred bucks a month in it and you're going to segregate that money for discipline because you're going to do something with it in 10 months. You need a thousand bucks. You go add account, boom, boom, boom. It's there. And just, you know, you go log in and it has your checking, your savings and like your tertiary savings account just sitting there. What they'll do is all the banks will be in on this and poof, a new account will show up, but it's actually a wallet. That's where your STEMI money goes. And they'll be like, okay, you get 90 days to spend this. Spend it first. You use it, it'll work. Now, all the big banks will integrate this very quickly, and they'll say, oh, oh, you're with Joe Blow Bobby's freaking dipshit bank. Well, they're not part of the program. You'll need to open an account with one of the mega banks if you want yours too, and you have until this date to get it done. See how simple that is? I'm not saying this is going to happen, but I'm just trying to go evil genius and be them. And what would I do? I want to funnel money to the big banks. Well, there's a minimum deposit requirement. It's not much 500 bucks. Where are you going to get it? From your existing bank. Imagine unplanned for massive numbers of $500 withdrawals from Joe Bo Bobby's Bimbo Bank or Bill, Bill Joe's Navy Credit Union Bank or whatever. Think that might hurt while all this other shit's going on? And then, well, we've decided that America needs a lot of help right now. And it can be a token amount, 100 bucks per depositor per month, as long as you're one of the qualifying banks that are part of this system. And you will get a de facto CBDC. That's one way they could do it. Something along those lines is coming. Everything's signaling these digital currencies run by central banks. And notice they don't call them bank digital currencies. Central bank digital currency. But, you know, everybody's sounding the alarm on our side anyway about the CBDCs. I'm sounding the alarm about what financial pain is required to get it done. I think in Europe they can just do it. Europe's like, oh, okay, whatever. The government says to do this. Then do this. Government says to bend over and get a cheese grater shoved up your ass. Boy, you better bend over. The United States, for all our faults, still has a deep inherent distrust of government and corporations. And we still have a lot of people that are like, the fuck you will. That's why they're working so hard on our next generation. Our next generation, based on the four turnings, should be the ones that end up fixing everything. So let's just fuck them up so they can't do that and we can maintain control. I encourage you to read the fourth turning as well. I don't agree with everything in there, but the concept as a total makes a lot of sense. The Gen Z's should be the ones that are fighting World War II. The Gen Z's should be the ones that are fighting the Civil War. The Gen Z's should be the ones that end up fighting the American Revolution. Or maybe 2.0. But they don't even know what bathroom to use. They have no skill sets whatsoever. They've been taught that government is the solution to all their problems. They still don't trust government. But if just the right government comes in, then it really can fix everything. It's all these Republicans messing it up. Right? This is exactly, and, and K-Bonk, you get a bonus star. Isn't that how the EU came about in the 80s? It's exactly what happened. 
to a degree. And look at Europe now. Can you think of a group of people that don't have the threat of being pulled out in the street and shot in the head like you might in China that are more compliant to their government than Europeans? I mean, really? Just as a total aggregate average, the compliancy there is insane. I had a little dinky website, doesn't matter what it was about. It was more of like a, uh, it was based on a book, just for fun. And so I was learning how to do shit. With, I was using like Microsoft front page. That's how old this is. So mid-90s, just learning how to make websites. So I made this website about this book and this author. And there's all kinds of, like, it's early days, like little things you could do, like set up a guest book. Nobody does that anymore. We have blogs and comments and forums and social media. You used to have guest books. I visited your site, right? I visited your site, and I'm from here, and this is cool. Like, that's what it was for. So I got one of these little, you know, cut and paste things that ran on somebody else's server, and it made a guest book. And I stuck it on there, and you could customize it with images. So being from Texas, I found a picture of the state of Texas with basically as the Texas flag with our flag, but shaped like Texas. So I stuck it there. Well, this book was actually really popular in Europe. Again, this is mid 90s. I started getting all of these negative. I want to say they're hateful negative comments about nationalism and identifying with where you're from instead of as a citizen of the planet and whatever. I'm like, what the hell is going on? Looking back now, I know exactly what was going on. I'm completely aware of what was going on. So all of this to say, understand where we're headed. Exactly what it looks like when we get there is unknown. But the overall goal is clear. A currency that can be controlled, manipulated, expanded, contracted at will. And when I say controlled, I mean down to what you can spend it on, when you can spend it, how long you can hold on to it. By the way, it won't apply to their money. Like Jeff Bezos's money is not going to all, all of a sudden start disintegrating after 90 days of being earned. That's not going to happen. But your money they give you will. Right. And it will come with conditions of how and where you can spend it. And there will be almost a parallel system for a while. And there will be a major reckoning to all of this financial nonsense. But take the lesson of 0708. It can take longer to happen than you think. And there could be lots of holes in the Jenga wall and don't get led to believe the wall's not coming down. There's no way this doesn't rectify. And then add into it a war, a potential world war. And I will submit to you, we have a world war going on right now. We have countries fighting each other all over the globe. And we have large countries making tactical moves all over the world. You have China basically owns the Panama Canal. They bought it. We left. Jimmy Peanut gave it back. And in the 90s, we completely pulled out. Okay, you guys own it now. Except they had no money to run it, and they didn't have the capability to run it. They had no way to do it, so China came in with money. Now China is building a naval station in the Magellan Strait, which controls shipping around South America. There's not a lot of global shipping there, but if you've ever looked at South America, getting shipped from one side of South America to the other through the jungle ain't easy. There's a ton of inter- shipping there. And then you do have a lot of international shipping through the Panamanian Canal. So China's kind of wrapping that up. While we keep sticking our face into everything in now Europe versus the Middle East, but we still have a tremendous presence in the Middle East. Russia is advocating for independence in Africa 
for the African nations that are still under French colonialism that apparently nobody knows about. But there's a whole section of Africa that's still under French colonialism, which is why France has this massive North African immigration problem. And there's a lot of animosity among those people going to France going, it's our turn to invade you. They're literally saying that. At the same time, we got us showing down with China. We got Taiwan, which we I'm going to tell you something right now. We will defend Taiwan, not because we're good guys, not because they're good guys. We can't afford not to. Economically, we can't afford it. If China takes Taiwan, the level of control that they have over our ability to import a lot of our technology is unbelievable. As much as they have now, they have even more. We're not fixing it. And I could keep going. I mean, do you know there's a U.S. African command? We have so much military presence in Africa that no one ever talks about that we need a command center just for U.S. African command. And we have the potential for breakout style rioting all over Europe. And you have people who have been compliant and done what they're told, and they see themselves as those good citizens kissing ass. They're about tired of their streets being burned down, sound familiar, and they're starting to get pissed. We got farmers that are literally ready to start going killdozer in mass. You're looking at a world war in front of you. We've been told for so long missiles going from both sides that we forgot that you can have a world war. It's not even all conventional warfare. It's a lot of guerrilla warfare, et cetera. And the United States has been at war since, well, ever. There's almost, there isn't, there almost isn't a year between 1900 and today that we didn't blow something up or shoot somebody somewhere off our own land. And it's all a mess. And on top of it, well, they need to control you. You know they need to control you. So what's next? Well, when you're out of ideas, go back to the last thing you did that worked, which was getting everybody scared of an illness. The CDC is preparing for a winter with three bugs out there, COVID, flu, and RSV. The triple demic. Dun, dun, dun. And they're encouraging you to run out and get your babies vaccinated from RSV. It's not a vaccine. And I don't mean it the way that I always meant it when I talked about the COVID mRNA. They will tell you if you actually dig in. It's not a vaccine. It's a therapy. It's a prophylactic therapy that they have almost no data on its safety at all. Yet the media is out there being the news cockatoos again. Go get the vaccine. Go get the vaccine. And people are doing it. The triple-demic and the tri-demic. We tried one one year. We'll just change the name a little bit, and we'll run the whole scare tactic again. And watch this. Get We're sitting in summer. There is no problem. But if you read this article, the number of Omicron B blah, 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 whatever, 44.95 variant tests are going up at ER testing. What they won't tell you is that's because they test everybody still that goes into the ER, even if they have no symptoms of this thing. And if we stopped testing for it everywhere all the time, we wouldn't even notice it. They don't tell you about the weaknesses and this continued evolution of COVID versus a vaccine efficacy, if it ever even worked in the first place. They won't talk about vaccine safety at all. 
And the flu vaccine is never highly effective, but they'll scare you. Now, I don't care about them out there using propaganda to sell us on vaccines. I, I don't care. It doesn't matter to me. Nothing about it matters to me. I don't care because I'm not doing it. And I think we are at a point now where there's a shitload of people who aren't doing it. And there's a shitload of people who will do whatever they're told. And I don't think there's any separating that right now. I will tell you that, like, they are literally disposing of vaccine stockpiles because they're expiring. There's a lot of people that are still, go get the shot, get your booster, get your booster's booster and your booster's booster's booster. But they're not actually doing it anymore. They just can't publicly admit that they were wrong. There's been, there's never been a time where there's less trust in medicine, but there's still fear of disease. I think there's a probably 70, 30 shot that they try to recreate the complete fear based. We might need to lock down again, even if they don't do it. We might need to bail out again, even if they don't do it. They might try to really gin up and create that this fall. That triple damage. You know, they leave out things like in general, if you have something like this, one of them ends up being the dominant. In other words, like it's gilding. Like if you have a particular variant of flu, it ends up being the one that you find most prevalent. And if it's the most prevalent thing, then the other similar illnesses decline. So the triple demic is nonsense. We've, it's, it's, it's not ever happened. We haven't had a bidemic. But boy, it helps you sell medicine that's not medicine, right? That's never actually been tested in a peer-reviewed, controlled study, right? Long-term, it doesn't exist. It never has. But you better go do it. And the, the, the TV set and the radio will just keep telling people to do it. And the only reason I bring it up today is if you, if you add it to everything else I said, it has within it the ability to either cause the final economic reckoning or be a managing component of the economic reckoning that we're about to have. I wanted to end with some good news, though, or some more of an upbeat topic. I mean, this has been pretty harsh, I, I guess. Um, but people are changing in this country. Maybe, maybe it's not so much that Gen Z will be the generation that fixes it. Maybe it's just that Gen Z will be the coming of age generation when we all are called to fix it. See, this is the problem with the four turning theory. It's presented as if each generation is solely responsible for its historical block of roughly 20 years in time. These are 80-year blocks. As if all the people that were too old to go to World War II, but bought war bonds, accepted rationing, planted victory gardens, had nothing to do with it. All of the people that were too old to go to war, it wasn't just Rosie the Riveter that went to the factory. So did all the guys that were like in their 40s and 50s. It's presented as though only this small group the small cohort actually did the thing. Well, I think we're reaching a point where more and more Americans are going, 
I don't even understand what's going on, but I'm not okay with it anymore. And I think that's really seen in this new song that, once again, the left hates. You know, they hated Am I the Only One by Iron Lewis. They really hated a movie about child trafficking, which is completely bizarre to say out loud out in the open. And, and the claim, well, it's, it's QAnon adjacent or whatever the hell that means, like, had nothing to do with that at all. That's why they threw the word adjacent in there. Say it was for dads with a superhero movie for dads with brainworms. This is what they actually said. Not my words. That's their words. And it exposes one of the most sick practices in the world, and they hate it. Well, now they hate. Try that in a small town. And if you haven't heard the song, it's, it's, it's a formulaic modern country song, so it sounds a little bit more like pop than traditional country, like they all do. But the words are really good. And the basic concept is you might pull all your shit, burn down buildings, you know, rough up old ladies, steal cars, et cetera, and get away with it to a large degree in all them big cities. But if you come here to our small town and you try that shit, it ain't going to fly. We will not let it happen. Of course, the left hates this. And the white liberal is the most racist demographic in America. I've said it before. For all their shrieks and cries of fighting racism, they are the most racist people because they're the ones that believe that if your skin color has more melanin in it, you need extra points on your test to get into college. Otherwise, you would never succeed. They're the ones that think that. Not people like me, right? It's white liberals that are the most racist people. And they take this song as racist because they view everything through their own racism. And if you're saying it's not okay to loot, to riot, to steal, and to hurt people, well, you must be talking about black people. That's why they think that. Now, it's kind of backfired. The song, which was released back in May, has like charted everywhere once they attacked it because they learned nothing. All they had to do was nothing, and it would have been not the hit that it is. But I've noticed something. YouTube is full of black people doing reaction videos to it. I mean, there's hundreds of them. Black dude watches, you know, try that in a small town. I have yet to find one, and I looked. I tried to find one. I fast-forwarded them just to get, instead of watching the whole thing, like, can I find one? It's like, yeah, man, that's some bullshit right there. No, they love it. They love it. And if they don't love it, they like, that's not racist. I mean, I listened to a dude yesterday. He's like, they were showing white people, black people, you know, Hispanic people, like all different people doing all these horrible things. It wasn't like it was all angled. That it was, you know, he's like, there's no way I can call this man racist for this. That dude was even like, I don't know this guy. I don't know if he's got some other songs, and that's why people feel that way. Uh, Jason Aldean is the guy, by the way. He's like, so I don't know if there's something else, but if you're going to show me this, I don't see it. Do you know why? Because it's not there. And because the average black American doesn't see things the way that the average white racist liberal sees things. They just don't. They just don't. There is no group more blind than especially upper middle class white liberals from college student to the ones that are living in the suburbs with a kid or two today. If they are not non-reproducers, there is no group. I'm sorry, politicians down to people on the street. There is no group more racist. And all you have to do is listen to what they say. 
But I think in this case, they're not just wrong about that. I don't think they get the song as a whole. And this isn't, hey, this is the greatest song ever. Go listen to it a hundred times. This is just what I see when I listen to the song. It is not a threat. It's not, come here and we'll kick your ass, which is how they're taking it. And, of course, it must be about black people. Basically, the left is taking it is if you live in a small town and black people come to your town, you'll run them out of town. That's that's how they're taking it. No. A lot of these people that I'm watching do these reaction videos are like, well, I live in a small town. And he ain't wrong. We don't take that shit here. And that's you know, black people, white people, Hispanic people virtually all feel the same way. We're a very integrated culture. Now, there's parts of our country that are very white, and there's parts of it that are very black. But in general, any state you go to, there's small towns that are very multiracial, and no one really gives a shit anymore except the people trying to manipulate. Try that in a small town. It's not a threat. It's a brag. That's something I've not heard anybody say other than me so far. It's a brag. It's not we will kick your ass. It's the fact that if you come here and try this shit, we won't accept it. That's why it doesn't happen here. It is the father who's never going to put a belt to his kid's ass, but the kid thinks he might. And so it never get the theory never gets tested. It's the nuclear red button all through the 60s, 70s, 80s. The fact that there was a button meant nobody was going to use theirs because the other side would reflect it back at them. It's the fact that the police, by and large, in these small towns, will not protect the rioter at the expense of the actual victim that owns the building that's being burned down. That's what it is. People that riot, destroy, loot, and do this shit, they do it in their comfort zones. And outside of that comfort zone, it's more than not comfortable. It's fucking dangerous. And most of these people that do this shit are fucking cowards. So it's a brag. You won't bring your cowardly ass here because you'll know you get it kicked. And that's why it's resonating with people. And when people think small town, they think real rural America, like survival retreat America, towns of 50 people out in the middle of nowhere. And if you look at it that way, about 20% of Americans live in rural America. If you change that definition to we mean small towns, we mean small towns. More than half of America lives in small towns. As soon as you're outside of the city proper and its beltway suburbs, it's all small towns. Now, where I live in Dallas, Fort Worth, we have a lot more urban sprawl. I wouldn't call Louisville that not so long ago was a small town, a small town today, and it's well north of Dallas. So we have more sprawl in some of these places. But just go a little bit further. Get up north of Denton. And there's millions of people that live between there and then go, going west and east and up to the Red River. It's all small towns. There are plenty of people that live in small towns and work in the city or, you know, just on the edge of the city. They drive in 20, 30, 40. In Texas, it's common to drive... 45 minutes to an hour, one way to work. Very common. It includes those places, too. It includes those places, too. It, to me, it's it's towns with 10,000 or less people in the biggest area that's right around there. And a lot of the satellite towns then are 500, 1,000, 1,500, 2,500 people. They don't tolerate this shit. 
And because they don't tolerate it, and when I say they, I mean the average citizen, the average business owner, and law enforcement. It's like, I don't think so, Scooter. It doesn't happen. That's what that song is about. It is a brag, not a dare. Now, a lot of people want to take it as a dare because they're the bravado and I'm I'm tough or whatever, right? Come on. In the end, that's what it really comes down to. You won't do that shit here because you know what will happen if you do. And hence, we don't ever have to do it. That is actually one of the most encouraging things that I've seen. And to see so many people that are immediately assigned as the other side. Now, I said assigned. I don't assign them to the other side. White liberals do. White liberals do. White liberals are like, well, you're, you know, you, you know what? You don't hear conservative, I won't say journalists, talk show hosts, right? Conservative talk show hosts do. They don't bring a black person on their show and they go, as a member of the black community, how do you feel about this? If they happen to have a black guest, they ask the same question they ask a white guest or an Asian guest. How do you feel about this? But liberals, well, clearly, since you're black, you speak for the black community, right? So do I speak for the white community? It's a very facetious, condescending, racist way to put things. Teachers love to do it, by the way. In small towns where there's a very minority of blacks, I remember high school, talking about slavery, one black kid in the class. Well, how do you feel about it as a black kid? Well, let's just shine a light on it. Let's make it all about You see, that's not a comfortable position, I would think. And the one I'm thinking of, this guy was a very good friend of mine. His name was Rob. And he told me, he said, that was some bullshit, right? And this guy was this country hit deer jerky eating as me. And so that's been going on in that liberal space forever in a day. And that's why they see everything that way. But to see the people they assign that go, no, this is bullshit. No. I, and, and to see them actually, like a lot of them go, I'm going to put this on my playlist. That gives me hope. I don't think the fourth turning is really about the cohorts. It's just what cohort is in their 20s and early 30s when the thing happens. It's up to all of us. And if we don't unify against them, we're going to have a real problem. And here's the thing. I don't think we are. I think we're going to fractional unify. There is going to be the loyalists and the patriots all over again. That's our fourth turning. And it's a battle that will be fought as much in fact, I think far more so. It is a battle that is going to be fought economically. It's going to be fought from a capacity of production, a capacity to adapt, and a capacity to work together. You're going to have one side that believes fervently that the best way to work together is by choice, and another side that believes it's important that people be forced to work together, least they make the wrong decisions. However, the market is the ultimate decider, and the market cannot be contained or controlled. And every time it's ever been attempted in history, it's failed, and it's eventually fell apart. But the Soviet Union lasted from, well, really the 20s until the 1990s. That's a long time to fail, but it always fails. 
The difference is we're at a precipice where the thing they want is the thing that's failing. That's the hope. But I'll put it to you this way. All we seem to remember about D-Day and Normandy today is we won. We won. Remember the kid, we said, we won, we won. We shot the BB gun, right? Yet how much does it matter to the guy that hit the beach two seconds later, fell into the water, was wounded, couldn't get up, and drowned to death? Did he win? So don't think when I say I have hope for the eventuality that means everybody gets out alive or unmaimed or unharmed. And this is why you need to follow a Russian proverb right now. That is, those who sweat the most in peacetime bleed the least in war. If you ever heard that before and you didn't know its source, that's a Russian proverb. You sweat the most in peace, you bleed the least in war. Our sweating is different. Our sweating is educating our children outside of their system of bullshit. Our sweating is developing our own networks, payment systems, communications, and technology. Our own businesses, our own system. We need to stop talking about parallel. Parallel means we have a tolerance for their system. We can no longer have a tolerance for their system. Their system is a system of blood and slavery and extraction. Doesn't mean that we deny that it exists. But our take now needs to be, it doesn't need to be a parallel system. It needs to become an archaic, outdated, dead system. It's already dying. Dying beasts are dangerous. But if everybody runs in and gives it one good stab, we can kill it. it just might take a really long time for it to die. I hope you enjoyed today's show. I'm going to end there today. No traditional exit segment or anything like that. But I encourage you. Everything that I've been teaching for 15 years now. If you've been doing it, do more of it. If you've been saying someday I'll get around to it. The time to get around to it was yesterday. And the next best time is today. You got a weekend coming up. Pick something. Do something. Go back and listen to my show from Monday. And then blend that because more of you show up when I talk about blood running in the streets when I, than when I talk about building a better life. The two are not separable. They don't go in different categories. Build in the blood. Build in the blood. Buy the blood. Build in the blood. This is, I believe, one of the first times in history that the people aware of what was going wrong started the rebuilding process before the collapse. Get on board. Make it happen. I'll catch you guys tomorrow with Expert Council Show. There'll be no live stream. And then we'll be back for another week to do it all over again. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way A dollar down, a dollar a month And you never have to pay There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
revolution.